According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one more time in Luke 19. Luke 19. And um, we wrapped up the last bits related to Zacchaeus in verses 1 through 10. And then in the few minutes that we had remaining one week ago, we went ahead and kind of got a sneak preview of uh, verses 11 and following. The uh, episode uh, is connected. In fact, 38, 39, 40, they're all connected in the uh, last Judean and Prean ministry. They all take place in the city of Jericho. They all take place uh, on our Lord's final approach to uh, Jerusalem on his way to be crucified. And so we see... um, Verses 1 through 10 deals with Zacchaeus. And then in verse 11, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. He goes on to tell a parable. Keep in mind, this is dealing with uh, what he had told uh, the household there in verses 9 and 10. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And on the basis of that, the audience, the people, uh, started, including some critics, uh, started to assume certain things. And that's what we see here in verse 11. Uh, they were supposing that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so because of that, uh, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. And so verse 12, he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. All right, it's not the trip to Jerusalem this next week that's going to usher in the kingdom. And there's actually going to be a significant delay. In fact, he has to depart to a far region, a faraway region. In fact, it's so far away you can't get there from here. Uh, And that's what we're going to uh, evaluate here as we proceed through the message today. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure each believer priest is filled with the Holy Spirit. Distractions are set aside and we have humility before the word of God, shall we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have once again. Father, this is a grace provision this morning, and I thank you that you've allowed us to be here. I thank you uh, for the privilege we have to assemble together. We ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask for a hedge of protection uh, to hinder anyone that would want to come in here and and bring us to harm or disrupt our proceedings. And Father, uh, allow for the word of God to go forth without distractions, Father. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this is episode number 40, the parable of the Manas. That's how I've decided I'm going to pronounce that. It has a variety of different pronunciations in English, but we'll go with Manas. All right, this parable is remarkably similar to the parable of the talents. And we're going to do a bit bit of flipping uh, here shortly uh, to Matthew 25, and we're going to compare them a little bit side by side. I won't do a whole lot. Uh, only enough to observe the differences, and then we will allow for the parable of the talents to be taught in its own context uh, towards the end of uh, the final week at Jerusalem. In fact, it's episode 13 of the final week at Jerusalem. And uh, 
So we'll, we'll handle that on its own in Matthew 25. The only flipping we'll do today as we go back and forth is simply to spotlight some of the differences. I think it's unfortunate that so many people overlap these or assume it's the same message uh, that they're, they're actually pretty sloppy in making that assumption. And so we'll, we'll discuss why they have to be different. We'll also evaluate how the similarities are actually a blessing for us to learn from uh, because we, <clears throat> we, we make a mistake if we just um, dismiss everything as saying, well, it's different. There's nothing I can learn from this. No, 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 not true. When there are similarities, those similarities are going to be valuable for us. Okay? Israel and the church are different, clearly, and so we don't try to appropriate Israel's promises as the church, and we have to maintain the differences for what they are. But at the same time, when we do observe the similarities, we can learn from those similarities. We can understand what it, you know, Israel was a people for God's own possession. The church is a people for God's own possession. So there are similarities, even though we are different people. And so we can learn from those similarities. And uh, we'll pick up on some details here as well. Secondly, Jesus delivered this parable in order to teach a principle and dispel an inaccurate supposition. To dispel an inaccurate supposition. In fact, I would put forth that a biblical communicator is under an obligation. Um, A a biblical communicator, this is one of the have-tos for communication. In the church age, the age of Israel, any, any stewardship, God is a God of truth. And those who communicate truth are to do so uh, as speaking the utterances of God. We understand that. And if it comes to your attention that there is a misperception out there or a confusion or an inaccurate view, um, you're, you're on very dangerous ground if you simply let it slide. If you simply allow for that ignorance or that misinformation to continue now there might be a a um, value in in going with something for the sake of argument for a very short period of time christ does that uh others can do that that can be effective to allow uh, a false argument for the sake of argument in order to more fully highlight how ridiculous it is you can do that but I think you have to be cautious in doing that and, and do it for a short period of time, but then immediately bring it through to that final point. You can't just leave it hanging out there. Because the longer you leave it hanging, the longer people get it fixed in their minds that that's actually the truth. And so this idea that the kingdom is coming immediately, um, Christ is not going to let that stand because it's not true. The kingdom has been rejected and is about to be uh, totally rejected when he's crucified. So... Uh, he's not going to allow that misperception, that inaccurate supposition to stand. And he uh, reveals that here through this whole story. The kingdom is not going to come from Jerusalem. The nobleman has to go to, away and, and receive the kingdom and then return in possession of the kingdom. All right. And that becomes the entire point here or one of the major points of this of this parable. Thirdly. <coughs> The immediate appearance of the kingdom of God, at least the idea that there would be, uh, fails to accept the previous rejection and consequent mystery state. Mystery state. And if this is new terminology for you, I'd just encourage you to jot it down, give it some thought, and then consider the uh, study that we did in the Galilean ministry uh, related to the parables of the kingdom from Matthew 13. All right. Back in Matthew 13, the kingdom was spoken of as a mystery. 
And there is all of the doctrine that correlates with the term musterion, all right, with the mystery principle. The fact that mystery is something that was planned by God, uh, information was withheld for a period of time, but information was then unveiled at the appropriate moment when those to whom the mystery was being revealed could appreciate it, understand it, digest it, and make application. And so in Matthew 13, we have the mystery parables for the kingdom of heaven. And it's powerful. You've got to accept Matthew 13, Matthew 18. You've got to accept the mystery aspects of the kingdom of heaven. And as we studied it, the mystery component. Now, I call it, this is my term for it, by the way, mystery state. Okay? This refers to the uh, rejection, the period of time in between when Israel rejects their kingdom and when Israel accepts their kingdom. Okay. So, by the way, that started in first advent and will end at second advent and it overlaps. This is why I think dispensationalists struggle a little bit because it does overlap the, the dispensations. The mystery state of the kingdom overlaps the, trend, the day of Pentecost, right? Because the rejection, Israel's rejection of the king came prior to the church, came prior to Pentecost. Understand that? All right, so... Um, the fact that the kingdom of heaven mystery state will communicate certain things that apply to both Israel and the church. That's um, some uh, dispensationalists struggle with that. I don't. I think it's a wonderful thing to have a body of teaching that actually has a dual application um, because truly the, the, the situation we experience here, we're on earth in the middle of a bunch of unbelievers and we're given the gospel and talking about heaven and talking about where our savior is. Well, What's Israel going to do in the tribulation? They're going to be believers on the earth, surrounded by a bunch of unbelievers. They're going to be talking about Jesus Christ. And where is he? He's going to be in heaven. And they're going to be giving a gospel as it relates to salvation and eternal life, but then also as it relates to a heavenly kingdom that's going to come on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it, it, to me, it's not a problem for there to be a, a, a principle or a realm of teaching that overlaps, that covers both the church and the tribulation, that covers both the church and the last couple years of Christ's ministry and, and all seven years of the tribulation. And so that's what we see here, the kingdom of heaven, mystery state, mystery state. All right. And if it helps you to think of things in terms of um, uh, states in exile, sometimes that helps, too. Uh, a nation will set up a government in exile. You know, during World War II, the government of Poland was in exile as they, uh, you know, they were situated in England and couldn't return to Poland until Poland was, um, you know, liberated and, th and things of that nature. So you, you have different governments in exile. If that helps you think of the kingdom of heaven, you know, Jesus Christ is not on earth reigning in Jerusalem. The millennium hasn't started yet. And so if you want to think of the kingdom, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. We, and we can understand the kingdom of heaven mystery state has gone to a spiritual dimension. And um, I think it helps to explain why um, a lot of the crusader mentality that we see nowadays is, uh, is a bit misdirected. People trying to champion social causes and, and uh, morality reforms and things in this fallen world. And they're doing so in the name of the kingdom. I think uh, we, could, we could appreciate a more accurate um, approach related to kingdom doctrine. All right. Let's now look at the details of the parable. <clears throat> so under point four, I'm going to give you the details. 
And we'll run this down through verse 27 and uh, spell it out in subpoints A, B, C, D, and E. <clears throat> All right, we start off with a nobleman. He said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. The parable begins with this main character here. There's several characters in the story, but it all centers around this man. And um, he's at the beginning and he's at the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Subpoint A, who is this guy? A certain eugenic anthropos. That's who this is. A certain eugenic anthropos. Departed for a faraway region in order to take to himself a kingdom and then return. It's kind of interesting, the vocabulary that's used here. I'm not going to spell out a ton of vocabulary. We'll do a little bit in um, this next verse with the slaves and the business and the, the things there. We'll do a little bit of vocabulary in verse 13. We're not going to do a tremendous amount of exegesis or or uh, detailed things. But understand when it says nobleman, what's a nobleman? A nobleman is uh, well-born, all right? Someone uh, by birth into uh, a family or a clan or a uh, superior social status, all right? And we have to explain this a little bit largely because we are Americans and uh, our culture from its very founding has... Um, rebelled against ideas of uh, nobility. In fact, it's even written into our Constitution that we do not accept any dukes and earls and, and uh, the entire uh, peerage, British peerage system is invalid in this country and that uh, all natural-born citizens are uh, natural-born citizens of equal American privilege uh, as it pertains to citizenship. Well, the idea of eugenic, the, the prefix EU, meaning well or good, and then uh, the idea of birth from ganao or, or genesis. Uh, remember, Jesus Christ is the monogenes. He is the unique, one-of-a-kind uh, son. And here's a well-born. And who could be more well-born than the one who is sinless in his birth, the one who is uh, has the Father, God the Father, for his paternity. And... Uh, it is an interesting description. I find it remarkable because so much of what divides humanity in different places is this idea of class warfare, this idea of social distinctions, this idea of certain people being better than other people. And, and it's quite remarkable because for a, a nation that supposedly does not have this, we've developed a form of this in, in the, uh, you know, the ruling class of the elites and the, the intelligentsia and some of the the uh, folks that uh, feel like they're, they're better than other folks as far as um, this country is concerned anyway. You go to any other country, though, and it is just it's blatant. It's out there. It's publicly acknowledged. It's, it's uh, viewed as normal that you have your, your rulers and your, your aristocracy. You have your bourgeois. You've got the, you've got the lower classes. You've got, uh, and it's just considered normal in a lot of realms. So anyway, I'm not going to give you a sociology class today, but it is an interesting term that he uses for himself here as a nobleman and um, one that uh, perhaps 
we could break down a little bit better. The neat thing about us, of course, is that we have the same nobility. We have the same well-birth through faith in Jesus Christ that we have, uh, that uh, we have our Father and His paternity as well. And so um, it becomes an interesting uh, study at that point. This nobleman calls a portion of his slaves, not all of them, but a portion of them, ten of them, and uh, entrusts them with business activity. So point B, the nobleman called a portion of his slaves and entrusted them with business activity. And this is one of the differences between here and Matthew 25. It says in verse 13, he called ten of his slaves. Ten of his slaves. All right, so how many slaves does this nobleman actually possess? More than ten. Yeah, we don't know. The text does not tell us, but the language infers and even requires that he has to have more than 10. He, ha- he must have at least 11, okay? And I think chances are he has more than 20. I think that 10 of, uh, you know, indicates a, uh, a portion, possibly a, a less than half portion, okay? I can talk about one of my children, two of my children, or three of my children. It would be wrong for me to talk about four of my children because at that point I have to say all of my children. If I started to say, well, you know, the other day uh, I was going somewhere with four of my children, that would be misleading, see, because then you would wonder, well, you know, (laughs) congratulations, is there another baby on the way or what? You know, is there something we didn't know about? Is this that missing 98 baby that I think that sneaky one that's around here somewhere? I don't know. So, uh. My children were born in 92, 94, 96. Don't know what about 98. And then 2000, when Zoe came along in 2000. So we joke a little bit about that missing 98 baby who's somewhere. And then just sneaky. Well, 10 of his slaves. So when you look over at Matthew 25, then, there's, this is one of the differences between the two texts. Matthew. Matthew is the other way. Here we go. I'm breaking in a new Bible today, and so it's going to take time. Matthew twenty five fourteen. <clears throat> it is just like. What is just like? When you back up to verse one, the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins, and so you've got a, a parable that is giving you a simile, that's giving you a definition or a description of what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like, and then it gets followed up with another parable with the talents. It is just like. A man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And um, so in Matthew 25, we have a parable that's giving us a description of the kingdom, of what the kingdom's like. In Luke, we're not given a parable describing what the kingdom's like. We're given a parable describing why the kingdom is delayed and what's happening in the meantime until the king comes back with his kingdom. It's a huge difference. Also, um, he called his own slaves. How many did he call? Did he call ten of them? Did he call some of them? Did he call all of them? It said he called them, all of them, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. 
In Luke, did he entrust the possessions to them or he just simply gave them the cash and business instructions? He didn't entrust his possessions to them. And so to the one, to one, he gave five talents, to another, two, and to another, one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. And so uh, we have three that are listed. Now, there could be more than three because it's just to one, another, and another. It doesn't technically say that that other is the third and final, uh, but... After uh, he gives the five, the two, and the one, then he goes on his journey. Okay? Now, he's not called a nobleman, and he's not going to receive a kingdom in return. He's just a man going on a journey. Those, these, are, these are differences. And so then, you know, we're gonna, we'll come back to this, because the one who had five trades with him and gains five more. So he has a 100% return on his investments. And uh, the one who received two talents gained two more. Now, he only had an increase of two, but it still represents a 100% increase of return on his investments. You know, five made five and two made two. So they both did equally well on a percentage basis, but not on an absolute basis. And then the one didn't receive anything because he buried it in the hole in the ground. All right. Back to Luke 19 then. So it's not just simply a man going on a trip. This is a nobleman who is well born and not yet enthroned, who is going to a faraway country, a faraway land, in order to receive to himself a kingdom and then return as a as an enthroned king. And he calls ten of his slaves. Out of how many, we don't know. And he gives them ten manas. Now, verse 13 doesn't say that's one each. It could be that he gives a hundred of them out, ten to ten. But we find out a little bit lower when the first one reports in and says, Master, your mana has made ten manas more. So we find out that that uh, they were only provided one each. Okay. So he calls ten of his slaves and he gives them ten manas, one apiece, and says to them, do business with this until I come back. Another difference. All right. In, in this chapter, every one of these slaves is provided an equal investment. Every one of these slaves receives a mana, which is a hundred denarius, hundred denarii. Okay. In the Matthew parable, the three slaves were given different amounts. One was given five talents. One was given two talents. And one was given a single talent. And even that single talent, by the way, is 60 manas. All right? So on a scale of things, um, a talent is, is astronomical. Uh, your, your work a day, you know, carpenter off the street is not going to accumulate a talent in his lifetime. You know, he's just going to be working a trade and maybe he'll save for his kids. Maybe he'll build up some kind of a savings, but he'd do pretty well to save up a mana, let alone he's not going to approach 60 manas to have a talent. Five talents, 10 talents. That's not a, uh, a standard 
Uh, that's not a scale of economics. That's, we're talking billionaire status at that point. Kings, generals, tyrants, um, folks like that could have multiple talents, not, not slaves, not businessmen, not, not normal people. All right, so these are some of the differences here too. So there are lessons to learn in each chapter. There are doctrines and principles that we want to learn from in each chapter. We want to understand what does God expect of us. And in a context where we are all provided an equal amount. That's what we're going to study in this chapter. Every slave in this chapter gets a single manah. And so we want to approach the, the application here from the basis of equality. What do we receive that's absolutely equal, every single one of us in this room? Well, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we receive our salvation, we receive eternal life, we receive uh, the, the portfolio of assets, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are absolutely equal in position as far as the salvation grace blessings are concerned. And the pastor has no more than anybody else. The youngest believer in this room, and some young, young ones over here, uh, with eternal life, they have every asset you and I have. Every asset. Okay? And this is as it relates to the principles that are being taught here in this chapter. Now, when we get to chapter 25 of Matthew, when we get to the last Judean or the uh, uh, final week at Jerusalem, the Passion Week, and we reach episode 13 there in Matthew 25, well, now we've got a realm of teaching whereby three different slaves are given different proportions, each according to his ability. And one is entrusted with five, one is entrusted with two, and the last loser is, uh, is entrusted with one. Okay? I shouldn't call him a loser. He doesn't prove himself a loser until he's faithless with the one. Okay? And once he shows up all embarrassed with the one, after that we can call him a loser. Okay? As the scripture calls him a loser. And uh, there are principles to apply there. Why does God, why is it according to ability? How does God provide the ability? How does God reward the ability? How do believers of different abilities find themselves entrusted with different ministry responsibilities and things of that nature? See, And so we will um, evaluate that and, uh, and understand how it, how it pertains according to spiritual giftedness. Gifts, ministries, and effects, they apply in terms of the, uh, the varieties, in terms of the proportion. You understand. And so that'll, uh, that'll come out as well. All right. So point one then. Ten of his slaves are provided one manas each. If you want the vocabulary, a mana is M-N-A, mu, nu, alpha. It really isn't even an I in between the M and the N. Mana. <clears throat> it's like that old Muppet song, right? That mana, mana. Maybe this is where they got it. I don't know. Number 3414. Um, it is used nine times in the New Testament, mostly here. Um, in fact, I think entirely here. Um, but it's not even a Greek word anyway. It is a loan word. Uh, it does come from a Semitic original. We have examples of it from the Akkadian, from the Assyrian, Babylonian, uh, Hebrew, Egyptian, Phoenician, all with the MN. A or H kind of sound system. And so in Hebrew, it's mana, M-A-N-E-H, number 4488. 
and you've got probably four to six, maybe I, I don't remember now. There's an assortment of usages in the Hebrew Old Testament as it pertains to mane. All right, not only in Hebrew but even uh, in Aramaic. In uh, the passage in Daniel with the writing on the wall, the mene mene equal to uh, ufershin. Remember that? The writing on the wall. The mene mene relates here. And effectively, it's worth 100 denarii. A denarius is one day's wages. Uh, this is 100 days' wages. This is more than three months' worth of pay. This is, uh, you know, roughly, you know, a quarter of your annual salary. And, uh, and so it is a uh, substantial little, uh, it is, uh, it's not a talent, so it's certainly not two talents or five talents, but it is a, uh, it's not exactly a, a meager amount. See, if your employer handed you three months of, of pay in advance or 100 days of pay in advance and uh, said, you know, here's an advance on your, on your pay and do whatever you want with it, um, I don't think anyone here would turn that down. It'd be kind of fun to have 100 days of pay all up front. And uh, this is what the slaves are provided, all right? Secondly, they are instructed to do business. This is where we get our word pragmatics. Uh, pragma tuamai. Pragma is the noun. And uh, in English, we talk about pragmatic um, matters or, or pragmatics uh, in, different, uh, in different applications. Uh, a person who might be a pragmatic person is someone who's really no nonsense. He just wants to know how to get it done. He not really doesn't care about the, the showiness of it or the niceties. He's just very pragmatic about everything. Just tell me how to get it done. And so they want to get it done. They're to do business. And the verb often applies to business dealings economically, but it could refer to political business dealings. It could refer to any kind of business. It's almost as... It's almost as uh, vague or generic as our English word business, right? If you're, I mean, if you're going to give somebody the business, what are we talking about? Or, um, you know, business really is loosely applied depending on what kind of work you do, you know? I mean, my kind of business is the business of preaching and, and praying and, and uh, shepherding and, and that kind of thing, you know? But I talked to somebody else about business and they're talking about uh, diversified portfolios and some kind of uh, mutual funds or some kind of, you know, uh, they, they got an di entirely different scope of things they're dealing with in terms of business. Uh, even uh, have it in the, in the um, street world where our various uh, street corner entrepreneurs that uh, <laughs> apply their trade, you know, they call it the business uh, it typically relates to crack cocaine or, or methamphetamines or some other kind of, and women and all the, I mean, horrible stuff. And the, but that's their economy and that's their, that's their realm and that's their business. They don't want the boss man getting in their business. Remember <coughs> some of the lingo from my jail background. All right. So pragma tuamai, P-R-A-G-M-A-T-E-U-O-M-A-I. And uh, it's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. It's right here in verse 13. You've got a compound of it, dia pragmatua mai. Uh, dia meaning through, so it intensifies it and makes it more of a thorough business approach. Uh, number 1281 is that Strong's number, and it only is used one time in the New Testament right here in verse 15. 
So in verse 13, they're told to preg, uh, pregmatuamai, do business. And then when he returns, uh, after taking to himself the kingdom, or receiving the kingdom, he ordered that the slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what dia pregmatuamai, thorough business they had done. He instructs them to do business, but then he uh, audits them thoroughly. He reviews thoroughly the business that they had done with the ten manas that he had provided for them. Look with me one more time in verse 13. And, And read what it says and then tell me what it doesn't say. His instructions to them. Do business with this until I come back. Literally, until I come. The verb is erikamai, until I come. Do business until I come. Do business until I come. That's what it says. What does it not say? Can you spot it? I'm sorry? You're right. It does not say what kind of business. What else does it not say? It doesn't say when he's coming. Absolutely. What else does it not say? There's a lot of things it does not say, so there's no wrong answers here. There's a lot of things it does not say, but there's one in particular I think is critical. What? Doesn't say how much. That's right. Doesn't set a limit. Doesn't say what kind of business. That's right. Those are all very good. <laughs> it does not tell them to take a vacation. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Careful now. I'm thinking about a vacation. You're right, and slaves don't take vacation. All right. Here's what it does not say. It does not say, while I am gone. It says, while I am returning. And if you think that's not, if you think it's not important, I would encourage you to think again. The duration of their economic activity is not while I'm away, but specifically. While I am coming. While I am coming. Even to say until I return is not an appropriate translation because it's not until, it's while, and it's not return, it is am coming. Am coming. All right? Jesus is coming. View that as a present participle activity. He is today, right now, He is coming. We don't know when the coming will be complete or when the actual arrival will take place, but He is today, right now, He is coming. He has been coming for 2,000 years. He is coming. That is a vivid description of imminency. And it is a powerful difference than simply while I am away. What happens when the cat's away? <laughs> yeah, the mice play. That's an old Hebrew proverb. Uh, I don't know if it's a Hebrew proverb, but it is, it's a truth. Out of sight, out of mind. I mean, it's a truth. The snare is, well, he's not coming. No, the truth is he is coming. The, the, the snare is thinking, well, he's away. No, don't think of it in those terms. He is coming. That's 
what we're challenged to, that's the application we're challenged to make as we work, as we serve. He is coming. The big difference between while I'm away or while I am coming. And the imperative to do business while I am coming specifically pinpoints this parable as during the kingdom of heaven mystery state. This parable does not have an application once he comes. This parable is describing the conditions for uh, the evaluation once he does come for those that were doing business while he was coming, while he was receiving the kingdom and returning. And so the duration of their economic activity is not while I'm away, but specifically while I am coming. And I think that is an important point to make because we ought to have that in our thinking on a daily basis. That Jesus is coming. And we could hear that trumpet today. So should I be about my father's business? Should I be serving him? Should I be obedient to what he has for me to do? Or should I just simply blow it off and figure, well, he's not coming for a long time? You wicked, lazy slave. Okay? So this becomes uh, an interesting description here as well. All right. Now, as soon as he goes, we've got more characters that are introduced. So far, all we've had is a nobleman and ten of his slaves. But now we've got some citizens. His citizens hated him. And uh, they sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. It's quite remarkable how he came to his own and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. But understand, what is the condition for Israel after the cross? What is the condition for the Jewish people after the cross? They rejected their Christ. They rejected their kingdom. They said, his blood be on our heads and on our children. They do not want this man to be king over them. So point C, let's look at the citizens. They're called politi. So we, get it. we have to get political today. Politi. And of course, even our English word politics comes from this Greek word we're looking at today. A polis is a city and a politeis is a, uh, is a city zen, uh, a citizen, uh, a, an inhabitant of that city with the full rights of that city. So the nobleman has politi, fellow citizens. And in the context of Jesus as the nobleman, these have to be the Jewish people because they were his people. He was Jewish. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was a citizen of Israel. Entitled to the throne, but not seated on the throne. So we can't think of him as both as their king. They are his subjects, but they are also his fellow citizens. And it's not at all illegitimate for a king to refer to his subjects as fellow citizens. That's actually fairly common. I found a couple of uses of that in Herodotus and uh, I was hunting through some secular Greek writings the other day and found some of that. Um, So the nobleman's politi fellow citizens also, now here's some fun vocabulary. And we're not going to expand on it today at all, but you know the words and you can imagine some of the concepts that are being taught here. Because they didn't just send a delegation. I really don't like the rendering here. They sent a delegation after him. Well, send could be a couple of different things, mainly pimpo or apostello or a couple of other things. But here's apostello, where we get apostle. 
They sent with an apostolic commission. You know, Pempo is to send just in a generic kind of uh, ordinary kind of way. You can send a messenger. You can send word. You can send money. You can send all kinds of stuff. Um, that's Pempo. But apostello is more powerful than that because apostello actually means to, to um, commission to appoint as a delegated representative to send a person forth representing you, speaking on your behalf, and representing you somewhere else. Jesus Christ sent forth the apostles in his name. They traveled with representative authority. They stood in the place of Jesus Christ representing him, commissioned to speak in his name. And here are these citizens with a commission sending out their own apostles as an embassy, presbya, embassy. And uh, you better believe this is, this, is, this is powerful language, a presbya, is precisely what we're studying in Life of Christ. In, in, uh, not Life of Christ, this is Life of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors Presbya is our term for the ambassadorship, the embassy. And so um, they are apostles sending an, an, a Presbya embassy. You know, this is the language that's employed, employed here in this parable, in this metaphor, but the language that's used is so vivid because it's going to be uh, it's going to be, it's a foreshadowing, it's going to be echoed when we get into the New Testament, when we get into the church, and we see how uh, pointed these terms are. And their apostles are really anti-apostles, uh, and their embassy is insisting on their own will. We don't want this man to be our king. In fact, we, uh, we don't want any king. We're happy running the show right now. Remember, the primary motivation for the Pharisees uh, they didn't want the king to, to take the throne because if he threw off Rome, then they would lose their position. They were the puppets under Rome that could dominate the people's lives, and Rome allowed them to do that so long as they got their tribute every year. And so, remember, uh, <laughs> they even admitted that in some of their messages. The Pharisees did, saying, oh, this man's going to uh, remove us from our place. So they commission a Presbya embassy after the nobleman expressing their preferable philematology. Their preferable philematology. What is that? You can use that next time with, it's not trademarked or anything. I might want to trademark preferable philematology. You know, philema is the will of God. Philematology is the study on the will of God. And you and I are supposed to imitate Jesus Christ to say, not our will, but thine be done. We are not supposed to express our preferences in opposition to what God the Father wants us to do. Jesus Christ said, not my will, but thine be done. Now, he does admit in his weakness, he says, if it's possible, he gives voice to a preference. He would prefer not to go to the cross. But he immediately takes that thought captive. He surrenders that. He gives it to the Father, says, not my will, but thine be done. Here's these guys saying, not your will, but ours be done. We don't want this guy to be king. And so the preferable thelematology is otherwise known as sin. <laughs> Rebellion, carnality, reversionism. 
You know, our culture has developed this code language, alternate lifestyle. Well, alternate means sinful because it misses the mark. There is no alternate. There's no alternative to keeping yourself in the will of God. The alternative to being in the will of God is sin. So, it's, it's remarkable how the adversary even uses language itself to twist word meanings, to twist, to create new definitions, to, uh, to win his arguments before they can even be fashioned because by um, stealing the language and the meanings of the language, he has already, it's like a, a, a choosing the high ground in a, on a battlefield. You've already prepped the conflict to the, uh, the ground of your choosing. Tremendous advantage in any military warfare. Their motive was hate. Talking about hate crimes today. Here's a hate crime. Their motive was hate. They commanded love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and they hate him. Isaiah said they hated me without cause. Their motive was hate. Their stand was that of an enemy. You know, he came to his own. But they were serving the enemy. The hatred comes out in verse 14. And at their execution, they're called enemies in verse 27. These enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. These enemies of mine. By the way, this is another difference between uh, the Matthew parable of the talents and the Luke parable of the Manas is the uh, execution of these enemies. Think about ourselves too and, and what Scripture warns us about. And we're no longer enemies, thank God. We, uh, we were but Christ died for us, and then we were delivered from the domain of darkness. We were brought into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We're no longer enemies as a matter of reality in our position. But what do we do when we um, choose friendship with this world? See, we, friendship with this world is enmity with God. We put ourselves back. Not, we, we can't become again positionally, we don't lose our salvation and we don't become a literal enemy, but we do put ourselves on the enemy's side in our own friendship with the world. And it's horrible to do that. You're just inviting all kinds of discipline. You're inviting all kinds of consequences. We don't want to be in that adversarial role. We don't want, behold, I'm against you. We don't want those kind of messages being uh, focused on our application. All right, when the, when the master returns, you'll note, by the way, their embassy didn't seem to accomplish anything. <laughs> right? You know, assuming, of course, you know, how, however, the, you understand this is a metaphor, and so the reality is that you know, there's, there's nothing that's going to change God the Father's intention from bestowing the kingdom upon his son. That is the purpose of the universe. And so, you know, people can express their preferences all day long. Uh, he'll, he'll permit certain things. You know, they demanded, give us Barabbas, you can crucify Christ. And 
things of that nature. But when it comes to actually seating Jesus Christ on the throne, there are no, there's no permissive will that's ever going to be realized. Jesus Christ has that throne. He's entitled to it. And so nothing thwarts the, uh, the man returning, the nobleman returns with his kingdom. And um, so when he returned, after receiving the kingdom... You know, that little sliver of verse 15 um, destroys crusader Christianity, human effort to bring in the kingdom. What, what, what did these people do to bring in the kingdom? Not a, not a single thing. The slaves didn't do anything. The citizens didn't do anything. The enemies didn't do anything except try to stop it, and that didn't do anything. The, uh, nobody helped him to bring in the kingdom. That was an interaction, a transaction privately between him and his father. And nobody here has anything to do with it except wait for him to return and serve while he is returning. And it just crushes me, all these misguided, and I love them because they're saved. They love Jesus. Um, I don't doubt their eternal life, and we're going to live with them for all eternity. But they are so involved, they're passionate, they're, they, they, and, and I think, man, if you could redirect your efforts to something productive, something biblical, something edifying, and these countless, countless hours and millions of dollars and all this effort that's going to bring in the kingdom. Well, he returned after receiving the kingdom. He ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money, the manas, uh, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. So the slaves are evaluated as to their productivity. And remember, this is, uh, we've had similar classes on this already. Productive slaves are rewarded with political authority. Look at this. The first one appeared saying, First one appeared in the language of appearing. We, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We all must, that's all we present ourselves, approved to God, workmen needing not to be ashamed. We should today be making daily appearances so that we have no uh, shame when judgment day appearance takes place. The first appeared saying, Master, your menah has made ten menahs more. Wow, what a faithful guy. From one, now he has eleven. Right, or now he has ten. <coughs> Your manah has made ten manahs more. And he said to him, I mean, what is this, a thousand, ten thousand fold percentage? And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very uh, little thing. This is the, the old King James, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay. You've been faithful in very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. Now, I'm running out of time, but if we glance back over here to Matthew, uh, there are no cities that are awarded. Um, the five-talent guy traded and gained five more, so he, he had a 100% return, which was only a tenth of what the guy does here in Luke 19. And Because uh, if he was going to equal the Luke 19 guy with a tenfold return, then he should have come back with 50. And uh, instead he comes back with just five more for a total of 10. 
And uh, so he traded with them and gained five more. In the same manner, the one received the two talents, gained two more. And the one uh, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. And then he comes to give an account. And uh, you entrusted five. I, ga- I gained five more. His master said, well done, good and faithful slave. Notice now, there's no, ta- there's no cities. There's no political ruling. I will put you in charge of many things. Doesn't say cities. But enter into the joy of your master. The reward is entrance into joy. Also, the one who received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents. So I haven't gained two more. Master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So while there are things, that is, matters, affairs, things, to be put in charge of, that's different than ruling cities. And there's a different message here. This is Jewish, by the way, and whether or not they're going to actually have access to the patriarchal feast or whether they're going to be out there with the weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness outside the millennial banquet. Different message. Different parable. Different applications. Ruling cities. Wow, wait a minute. (laughs) Now this... We can see has a, has a church application, things that we're going to consider because we are going to reign with Christ. I don't know that I don't, I don't anticipate that I'll get ten cities. Okay. I'll probably get a, maybe a neighborhood in one city or a block maybe. I, I don't know. Um, I could be a neighborhood watch captain in a small town somewhere. Okay. <coughs> Goodness. The... Um, Productive slaves are rewarded with political authority and continued opportunity for additional production. At first, it might seem that the slave is giving him all these minas back, right? Here's your mina or your mana. It's made 10 manas more. Is he, um, he's not giving it to the, the man. We, we know this because when the one guy shows up and he tries to actually return it, uh, the loser says in verse 20, uh, Master, here is your manah. He's giving it back. The point wasn't to give it back. The point was to do something with it, something productive. And the, 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 the productive slaves here, and, and it's interesting because where the other seven go? I think out of the ten, only two were productive. And only one of the remaining eight made an attempt to return the manah. There's no word about where the other seven went. Did they just they took the the manah and ran? As far as I know, I don't know. Um, but here's a loser that tries to hand back the manah. And what happens is he says, "Take it away and give it to the one who has ten. So this this. The number one slave, the most productive slave, uh, has not surrendered all those manas to the Lord. He still has them. He still has the ten. See how that works? And so what's he going to do with those eleven? Or actually, what's he going to do with those twelve? Because he gets the loser's mana also. And um, he's going to keep working. He's going to be able to do greater works than these. Man, if he turned 1 into 11, what's he going to do with the 12? 
So continued opportunity for additional production. And uh, this gives us a glimmer too, by the way, as far as the work that we're going to be, it's going to be expected of us. What are we going to be doing in the millennial kingdom? Do we have any responsibilities? Are we going to be doing more work? What are we going to be doing? The good news is I think we're going to be very busy. I know we're going to be very productive. And the best part is we're going to be sinless, <laughs> resurrected, glorified, sinless. Man, I, you know, sometimes I think, man, what, what kind of fruit could I bear if I wasn't carnal so much? <laughs> That's usually a rebuke that says, man, get in, get in fellowship and quit fooling around with all that waste of time. But what are we going to do for a thousand years of glorified, sinless consistency? The unproductive slaves are not entrusted with political authority. So this is slaves 3 through 10. Number 3, who has his manah stripped away from him. Uh, slaves 4 through 10 that are evidently now AWOL. They are not entrusted with political authority. And they are no longer provided for production. The next round of investments, they're not going to be bankrolled by this, by this uh, king. No longer a nobleman, now he's a king. And, uh, you know, under the Roman system, the runaway slave, of course, was crucified. Unproductive slaves are not entrusted with political authority and are no longer provided for production. Now, the... Uh, Evaluation principles are also taught in the Matthew 25 passage, but we want to understand that. Uh, and I'm already at 11 o'clock. There, there's a similar conclusion to both parables, and that being the five-talent guy makes five, the two-talent guy makes two, the one-talent guy said, Master, I'm afraid, um, and we'll have to come back to this next week, um, Master, here's your manah, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. You're an exacting man, and you take up what you did not lay down, you reap what you do not sow. And so because he was afraid and blah, 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 it's really just an excuse making. Over in Matthew 25, we also have a similar excuse. Uh, Master, I knew you are a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, scattering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, wicked, lazy slave. You wicked, lazy slave. You should at least, if you weren't going to invest in anything, at least go to the bank. And uh, on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. I mean, if, even if you weren't going to invest the talent, you could have at least stored up some simple interest in a, in a savings account or CD or whatever you wanted to do with it. All right, well, I'm out of time. But there are, there are similar evaluation principles that God expects you to be faithful with what he entrusts you with. But keep in mind, identical evaluation principles can be applied to different conditional testing circumstances. Now, the evaluation principle is the same. How you used what you were entrusted with is the standard. But don't confuse the fact that they have similar or identical evaluation principles because they are applied to different conditional testing circumstances. 
And when that happens, we do not equate the conditional testing circumstances in any way. All right. I'll, I'll come back to this next time because I think this is an important point and we want to make it. But we want to understand, um, I, have, um, I have testing as, as a husband and as a father. And uh, somebody who is not a husband and not a father does not have the same testing. Okay? Now, the evaluation principles are going to be similar for whatever his role is. He's still going to be accountable for what he's been provided for, but it's just a different application because what he's been entrusted with has been different than what he's than what I've been entrusted with. Does that make sense? And so, even though there are identical evaluation principles, they're applied to different tests, different conditional testing circumstances. Okay, you know, I got a lot of wives and mothers here today, and and you're tested. Uh, in terms of being a wife and being a mother. It's like I'm tested in being a husband and being a father. The, the, the realms are similar but different. But the evaluation okay, is going to be largely identical in terms of are we faithful with what we've been entrusted? Are we obedient to what we've been asked to do? Recognizing that mothers and fathers have been asked to do similar yet different tasks in their, in their realms. Okay, well, we'll come back to this. Almost got through it. There's, a, there's an E after this. And then we have to understand what these executions are at the end of the tribulation and uh, exactly how much blood will be shed before the kingdom can be um, entered into. So we'll uh, tackle a little bit of that. A lot of bloodshed next week. Just warn you right now. All right, Father, thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. And Father, we're, we're eager. Uh, we're gleaning right now that this message speaks to us. You are, your son is the coming king. And Father, while he is coming, today, tomorrow, every day, every moment, while he is coming, I want to be doing business. I want to be doing the business you've assigned for me to do. And so, Father, um, allow this message to speak. Allow it to convict. Allow it to mold us and shape us. And Father, uh, cause it to to goad us into uh, continued service for the glory of your son uh, i don't want to just simply hand him five i want to hand him ten i don't want to hand him one all embarrassed that i didn't do anything with it father um, thank you for this class and i thank you in christ's name amen